This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Diane Mulcahy, who's an expert on the gig economy and the future of work. She created the first MBA course in America on the gig economy at Babson College. The course was named by Forbes as one of the top 10 most innovative business school courses in the country. Out of that course grew a book entitled The Gig Economy, which has been translated into five languages and featured widely in national media. Diane, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's begin with your background. Um, tell us a little, uh, about yourself um, and uh, you know, how you got interested in the gig economy. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm the author of the gig economy, and I guess I became interested in it before it was even a thing, when I had my first job out of college. Um, you know, I worked in consulting, like many college graduates do. And I remember uh, somebody had given me the advice, you know, when, you, when you're starting your career, when you start your first job, you know, look up and look around and figure out whose job you want and then do the things that you need to do to get there. It gives you a direction. And I thought, well, that sounds like good advice. And uh, I got to my first job and I looked up and I looked around and I wasn't really interested in any of those <laughs> positions. And what I realized was that I missed the variety of having, you know, from when I was in school, of having kind of a portfolio of different things and having control and flexibility over my own schedule. And from that first job, I have aspired to having, um, you know, a portfolio of work with the control and flexibility to work uh, when and where I work best. Well, that's great. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and, you know, oftentimes um, the, the people think of, uh, you know, some, something that uh, is marginal, but this is becoming very mainstream, right? This is uh, everyone's doing this in every walk of life. People want to have that freedom and flexibility. Exactly. You know, since you've done some work writing about this, perhaps you can help the audience understand um, how you would define the gig economy? Yeah, that's a good question to talk about early on because I think that a lot of people feel like if you're talking about the gig economy, you're talking about Uber drivers. And I certainly am talking about Uber drivers, but it's also much broader than that. So the way that I talk about the gig economy is that it includes you know, consultants, advisors, uh, freelancers, people who might have a full-time job, but also have a side gig. So it's an incredibly broad definition, and it really does include um, multiple sectors, industries, education levels, income levels. Uh, it, it represents a significant portion of the workforce and of the economy. So it really is much more than just Uber drivers. Yes, yeah, so it makes sense uh, to have that broad uh 
uh, overview of you know what what this is. Uh, so so in your work, you talk about or you make a distinction between jobs and work. Uh, so so how do how do you think that relates to this? Uh, yeah, and you might be referencing, I wrote a Harvard Business Review article about why I tell my MBA students to look for work, not jobs. So, you know, what is the difference between the two? I mean, obviously, a job is what we think about in the traditional way of working, right? It's a full-time job. You have an, a, full, a full-time employee that is in the job and performing a variety of tasks. If you think about work, what that is, is taking what used to be a job and breaking it into its component parts. So it's taking that job and understanding what are the tasks uh, that represent that job and then how do you break that into individual projects, assignments, and tasks that can be done by a variety of people. So one of the best examples is you know, if, if you think about like a VP of marketing job and disaggregating that into a variety of work or a portfolio of work, what you might have instead is a contract with a PR agency for crisis management. You might have a um, independent contractor who does marketing strategy and helps you with product launches and different initiatives that you have. And those might be different people based on their specific expertise that relates to the market or product that you're launching. And then you might have, for example, a social media contractor for a few hours a week. So you've taken that so, you know, the way that many companies have traditionally organized their work is into these full-time jobs that encompass all of these tasks. But I think going forward, what we're seeing much more is those jobs are being disaggregated into a variety of projects, tasks, and assignments. And so work is going to look uh, much different. When, when we think about uh, jobs and work, how, how how are you relating this to the future of work? So is is the future of work more uh, work oriented, quote unquote, or uh, you, you know you, you see major transformations happening, or you you know uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that the future of work is work, uh, not jobs. So if you look at um, the evolution of, for example, the media industry, right? So there used to be full-time reporter jobs. Those have disappeared, essentially. And what's left is an, a variety of freelance writing projects or freelance work. And that, I think, is the direction that industries are going to take. I mean, job creation has already been at historic lows. And if you look at Silicon Valley, where our most high growth, highly valued companies are, you know, what you're not seeing is companies that are building workforces of hundreds of thousands of employees. You're seeing business models that are incredibly lean, that rely on, you know, a few hundred to a few thousand full-time employees, and then an ever-changing um, kind of circle of independent contractors and temp workers that are, you know, come in and out as needed. And I think that's really uh, the model of 
of the future is that there will always be full-time jobs. Um, those aren't going to go away completely, but there will be far fewer of them and they will be only in specific functions. And then there will be a lot more independent work. Mm -hmm. And, and when we think of um, the labor market and you, you've written, written about this as well, that um, workers uh, aren't protected like employees. Uh, and so, so, um, what, what are the ways in which we can address such a problem? Yeah, so I've written for Harvard Business Review and for Forbes on this topic. Uh, I, I'm a bit of a policy wonk. I am a graduate of the Kennedy School. I have a master's in public policy. So um, this is an area that I'm, I'm really interested in when you think about the future of work. You know, what, what are the implications for our labor market and our labor policy? And you know, the labor market that we have now is wonderful if you are a full-time employee. If you choose not to be a full-time employee or you're not able to get a full-time job, then you are penalized under our current labor policies. And wh what I mean is that once you leave full-time employment, you immediately lose benefits, protections, and rights that are only available to full-time employees. And we're seeing that play out in this crisis. This crisis is really highlighting the discrepancy, the discrepancies around how we treat different workers based on how much they work. So if you're an independent contractor or you're um, not in a full-time job, you know, sick leave has become a topic uh, that has been thrown into relief, right? If you're an employee, you have paid sick time. If you're an independent contractor, you don't. That's, that's a benefit that's not available to you. Similarly, if you're an employee, you have income protection available to you in the form of unemployment insurance. If you're an independent contractor, you don't have that. Um, now that's changing. We've seen some emergency policies be implemented, which, you know, I think uh, is wonderful because it does highlight the lack of support for different types of workers. And uh, I also think that once you move very quickly on the policy front to make changes, it's very hard to unwind those completely and go back to the way we were once this has passed. Yeah. Um, so I think it's promising for independent workers going forward. Yeah, no, I think uh, given the scale of, uh, you know, Uber drivers and Instacart workers and uh, so, so, you know, they had to do something. And I think Massachusetts has been at the forefront uh, where they said um, the gig workers or independent contractors can avail unemployment insurance, for example. Uh, but I don't think all states are doing that. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, a select few that are uh, trying to do that. And I, I don't know if it's happening on the, you know, um, on the federal level, whether folks can receive those kind of benefits like the paycheck protection program, right? That's for small businesses. Um, I wonder if all the gig workers can avail of something like that. Well, the, the Pandemic Unemployment Act, which is this, or the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, PUA, is, is a federal policy. So that is available. And it's, it's, not, it's not only platform workers. I mean, independent contractors include, you know, freelance writers. It includes hairstylists. It includes uh, independent management consultants. Um, so it, it, it covers a broad range of people that are self-employed uh, mm -hmm. and, that, and that work independently and have seen their income 
dry up. I mean, you, if you think about kind of, you know, speakers, all their events have been canceled. Um, so those are the types of people we're seeing apply for income protection. You know, their, their livelihood is directly impacted by um, the pandemic and the business closures that we've had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> very interestingly, um, because a lot of these, uh, uh, I guess, incentives are, are, uh, you know, are being provided as loans. Um, so I, I know someone who applied for uh, this kind of a, a loan and they were denied by the bank because the credit score wasn't good enough. <clears throat> so, so, you know, the, it, it, it's very interesting that even though the money is being allocated, it's not reaching the right people or the people who are in desperate need. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I, I think that a lot of inequity is still in the system. <laughs> well, there clearly are. And I think it has, that, that, that's why I think this crisis has really highlighted how many people are working in alternative structures besides being a full-time employee in a full-time job. And, you know, the idea that we have a labor market that only supports full-time employees looks very outdated now. You know, we should really be thinking about how do we want to support everybody who works, regardless of, you know, where or when or how much. And I think that that's the kind of thinking that is behind these new policies that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So so you, you talk about in your work um, this category of a dependent contractor. Um, can, can you explain what that is? Um, well, I talk about that as, a, as an option that has been floated. The idea is that right now, under our labor policies, you're classified as either an employee or as an, or as an independent contractor. So some of the policy proposals have been to insert a third category called dependent contractor, which is kind of a mix between the two. It's meant to, you know, the way that people work today doesn't lend itself to falling into clearly one of those two categories. And there are plenty of people who work as an employee and then have a side gig. So they're also an independent contractor. So our, our workforce is increasingly diverse and complicated and that classification system is obsolete. It doesn't reflect the way that people work today. So the dependent contractor is one option that has been advanced. Um, so I, I do discuss that in, in my book. Um, you know, my, my preference would be a little bit different than that and would look like just eliminating the classification system entirely and calling everybody a worker. Um, because again, I go back to the philosophy that, you know, our labor policies and our labor market should be designed to support people who work, regardless of the specifics about how they work. So if we have one category, everybody falls under it. And then you can decide, okay, what are the benefits and protections we and rights that we want to give to people who work? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that leads us to the question of yeah, then who, who provides the benefits? If everyone's a worker, then there's, a, there's, a, there's this um, interesting idea around portable benefits that, mm-hmm. you know, okay, I, I should be able to take my benefits from one employer to another so does 
the government play a big role in that? How, how does that, um, uh, you know, uh, how do you realize something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those policy problems that actually is uh, fairly simple in the sense that there's only three potential payers, right? You can either have individuals pay, companies, or the government. So traditionally in the U.S., we've relied on companies to pay. Although as the workforce has, as we've seen more people transition to working independently, we've seen the responsibility for providing benefits shift from the, from the companies to the individuals. That's probably not sustainable. Uh, we're probably going to have to go back to companies in some form or another. The Affordable Care Act is a great example of that. If you work independently and you need to access health insurance, for example, you can't get health insurance coverage through a spouse or a domestic partner or parents, then you're on the private market accessing it through the Affordable Care Act. It's an individual responsibility, but it is mandated. Um, so we can continue along those lines. You know, what I, what I advocate for is less about portable benefits, which requires it because it preserves that tie to being an employee and then taking those benefits with you, what I would support is more pro rata payments. So if you're a company, you have to pay unemployment insurance and health insurance premiums on a pro rata basis for everybody who works for you. So if it's a full-time employee, you're carrying the full load. But if it's you know a contractor that's working for you 10 hours a week, then you're only paying 10 over 40, right? You're paying a pro rata amount for all those benefits. And that way, you know, that kind of system eliminates the problem that we see today where there's an enormous benefit to companies um, to hire independent workers and avoid paying all of that overhead. Right now, under the current system, you either pay everything or you pay nothing. So the incentives are quite uh, stark. What, what a prorated approach does is eliminate that incentive because it becomes just a smooth curve. You just, you know, it's only based on hours worked. Yeah, and you, you know any good examples of um, companies trying to do that? Maybe some of the platform companies out there? Well, no, because it's very difficult to do that under the current system. Um, you, you know, if you're a company, you can only offer benefits to employees. There's really not a good structure for offering anything prorated or helping independent contractors access benefits. Um, it, it's a difficult thing to do under the current labor policies. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expertify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expertify.com for more information. I'm shifting gears a, a bit, um, can you, um, 
provide some kind of an overview on on how big is the um, the gig economy? Um, you, you know, some, some some data around that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I don't get too caught up in the numbers because uh, you know there have been a lot of studies and surveys trying to figure out how big is it, how fast is it growing, um, but. Everybody has a different definition. You know, the methodologies aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. So if you gather all of the studies together, academic, government, industry, you come up with a range that looks like approximately, you know, 20 to 40% of the workforce is working and participating in the gig economy in some way. Mm -hmm. um, the evidence is clear and consistent that it's growing and it's growing quickly. So... And that's not even evidence and data that takes into account this kind of dislocation in the economy where you have so many people who are losing their full-time jobs. And for many people, the gig economy actually can serve as a, as a cushion to that, right? So if you were working in a full-time job, but you can continue to do work on a consulting basis or you know, maybe expand a side gig that you had, it allows you to continue working and bringing in income, not at the same level as you were perhaps, but it does keep you from going from 100 to zero. So the, I, I think that particularly if this turns out to be, you know, kind of a, two, a 2020 phenomenon, right? It goes on for several quarters. You will see the growth, a growth in in the gig economy for this year, a rapid growth as a result of this dislocation. Mm -hmm. And and what what is uh, driving this this growth? Uh, I, I mean, apart from the, the current crisis, uh, what what is driving the growth? Uh, is it technology or is it you know, uh, is it a generational thing? You know, what what's happening? I mean. I, I feel like that's a misperception, you know, it's kind of the, like the millennials are driving this, these kids today, and it's really not like that. Um, the data is pretty clear that, you know, multiple generations are working in the gig economy. I mean, boomers are working in the gig economy to supplement their retirement income. They don't have enough to retire on. Uh, Gen Xers are taking on side gigs, usually as they think about, um, you know, starting something on their own, maybe they're experimenting with starting their own business, moving towards self-employment. And then of course, millennials. But if, so, so it is a broad-based phenomenon. Um, but if you ask independent workers, you know, why are you doing this? What, what is driving people moving to this kind of work? They're, they answer pretty consistently. And the number one uh, factor that's driving them to work independently is control. They want control over the work that they do, um, how much they work and where, and they want control over who they work with. So uh, control is a big issue. Flexibility is another big issue. The idea that you can control your life. You can decide when and where you want to work. When you do your best work, you can work more efficiently. There's no FaceTime. There's no politics. There's no, you know, far fewer endless meetings. So the flexibility is a big driver for people. And security. I know that, I, I know that's not an obvious answer because there's a perception that if you have a full-time job and a paycheck, you're all set, everything is stable, you're super secure. 
I think, um, you know, this crisis has revealed that that is more perception than reality. We, have, we live in an incredibly dynamic economy, even in the best of times. Companies are constantly, you know, launching new products, shuttering old products, entering new markets, moving into new areas, you know, creating new service offerings, and they need different types of employees in different places. And so even companies that are growing rapidly are at the same time conducting layoffs. Um, that's become a common feature in our economy today. So even if you have a full-time job, there's no security associated with that. You could be let go at any time as this crisis has demonstrated. So what I often hear when I talk to independent workers is, you know, they've either been through a period where that has happened or somebody close to them has had that happen to them. Like when I talk to my MBA students, they feel they have seen their parents during the 2008 crisis get laid off in, their, in the middle of their careers. And they've said, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be in a position where I have all my financial eggs in one company's basket. I want to diversify my income stream. I want to have better control over my revenue stream. And I want to create that security myself. I don't feel comfortable relying on a company for my financial stability and security. So I think those are the three main factors, kind of control, flexibility, and security. That's what's really, uh, from the worker side, that's what's driving the growth of independent work. Um, and we can talk about the company side too, but but that's what's driving it from the workers. Yeah, no, I mean, let's let's talk about the, the company side. I mean, what, what is uh, driving the companies to do it? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, again, I think the common perception is people say, well, companies just want cheaper workers, you know, and that's what's driving it. And actually, when you, you know, there have been a number of surveys done of kind of chief human resource officers, you know, the senior uh, leadership teams at companies asking them, you know, do you hire independent workers? And if so, why do you? And the answers look very different. I mean, one of the, the if you look at the kind of top three, it's, you know, we have positions that are persistently difficult for us to fill. We need to access a broader talent pool, right? We can't just look at the local full-time employee base as our talent pool. We're not getting the job done. So companies really need to broaden out and look at remote workers and workers that can come in with specific skills and expertise when it's needed so on a contract basis, they it might not be somebody they need full time. Another big driver is the ability to staff up or down as needed. And that could be a business that is regularly seasonal, or it could be around, you know, a particularly busy time, like a big product launch or opening a new office or whatever it is. So um, those are the big reasons, right? It's kind of workforce management is really what's driving it. It is true that in some cases, uh, you know, equivalent workers will be cheaper if they're independent. Mostly that sort of arbitrage exists at the uh, lower skill level employees. So if you're thinking about, you know, should I hire an executive assistant or should I outsource to a virtual assistant? 
you'll generally be able to realize cost savings by contracting independently for a virtual assistant. But if you're looking at, you know, a uh, software developer, a highly skilled, um, you know, a worker, and you're thinking about, should I hire that person as an employee or an independent contractor? Chances are that the costs are going to be fairly equivalent because highly skilled workers are in demand, they know what they're worth, and they charge fully loaded rates that include, you know, their taxes and their benefits. Um, so you're, you're probably not going to realize a huge cost savings at that level. Yeah, yeah. No, it make, makes sense. So, so the, the, in terms of when we think about um, these, the, this new paradigm with the new, uh, you know, work being at the center of the, we're referring to skills, right? People are trying to access specialized skills. And so do you also see education changing along with work? Right, because um, education is not changing as fast as work is changing. Well, work isn't changing that fast. It could change faster, um, but education is 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 slower again. And um, but there are signs that that it's changing. You know, one of the you know traditionally, if you look at the traditional jobs economy, the function of traditional education and degrees was to um, obviously, you know, transfer knowledge, but it was also an important market signal, right? If you had a college degree and from where and, and what subject, what does that mean? What we're seeing now is uh, education is moving away from that sort of once in a lifetime experience with a degree at the end and becoming much more integrated across people's working lives where you're constantly, you know, learning, you're a lifelong learner, you're taking classes and courses along the way, you're getting certificates, you're getting uh, digital badges, and everybody can kind of see clearly, you know, what did you have to do to get that qualification? What exactly does it mean in terms of, you know, what were you reading? What were the assignments? What, what are the types of specific skills that you required? If you go to the platforms, there are numerous like skill tests that you can take like oh you want to you know uh, work as an analyst well we're going to run these you know give you these tests and see how your modeling skills are and make sure you understand excel for example um, so we're seeing much more of that evaluating candidates based less on their you know once in a lifetime four-year education and more on what are the specific skills that they bring to the table regardless of how they got there. Um, we're also seeing an incredible democratization of education where, you know, anybody anywhere can take an online class at Harvard or MIT or Stanford or any number of the colleges uh, for a very low cost, you know, pennies on the dollar compared to being on campus as part of a degree program and still access that knowledge. And they can do that from wherever they want, whenever they want, and at their own pace. So all of those things um, have been around for a while and have had some impact on education. But I think this crisis and the closure of campuses um, is really driving that home. You know, students are already saying, 
wait, if I'm not going to be on campus, I don't want to pay the campus price. I'm not going to pay $12,000 for a class. I want to pay the MOOC price and I want to pay $200. So those kinds of pressures are going to force uh, changes probably faster, much faster than, than, it, than the trajectory they were on before this pandemic. Yeah, no, that, that's very interesting. So as, as we move beyond the COVID-19 uh, world and, uh, you know, when you look at the future, <clears throat> there are obviously um, many hurdles before gig workers uh, become, uh, you know, they're already mainstream, so, but they, they are actually integrated properly into the workplace and they are, you know, uh, so, so what do you, what do you th see the future as? Because when I look at the States, even right, they're, they're trying to protect gig workers, but, and, but they're, they're trying to use the old paradigm with the, you know, Massachusetts has this ABC test, uh, California passed a very stringent law <clears throat> where, uh, you know, they, they want to put them back into the W2 employee format, right? They want, they want to, uh, uh, you know, treat them more as traditional employees, rather than rethinking the entire mm -hmm. structure. So if you had to kind of rethink everything uh, and, and the future, right? What, what does that look like? Um, I mean, nobody knows what the future will look like. If I had to guess, uh, you know, my feeling is you can't put the genie back in the bottle. It just, it's not going to happen. So, you know, Everybody's working from home now. It's it it's not ideal, right? People are in spaces that aren't designed for working at home. There's lots of other people around, um, but companies have been forced to change their behavior in ways that they were either resisting or changing much more slowly. So we've seen, you know, five years of behavior change in a month, and I just don't think you go back from that. When people do return to the office, um, it will be very hard for companies to argue against employees wanting to work remotely, uh, which employees consistently do want to be able to do at least some of the time. So managers, leadership, company processes and tools are all adapted now to working remotely. And I think that's the new status quo. I think if you, you know, pulling out the lens and looking at what does this mean for the labor market, how do we think about who is a worker, who is an employee, um, you know, I, I think rather than a wholesale uh, transformation of the labor market, a wholesale reform, you know, kind of, if we were designing a labor market today, what would it look like, you know, blank sheet of paper, I'm not sure that's going to happen. But what I think will happen is, as we start to come back from this, there will be much more recognition and empathy towards independent workers and their need for similar benefits and protections as employees. What we, what's become crystal clear is that many independent workers are essential. And I don't think you can dial back from that either, right? So we've recognized the importance of these workers in our economy. And we've also been shown what it is, what life has been like for them without these normal protections. And that's been um, such a compelling picture that we have rushed into the void to fix that. 
Um, so I think we might step back and say, okay, that was an emergency measure. Now, how do we want to do this so that it becomes a permanent part of our labor market and is actually financed in a sustainable way versus, you know, the government kind of putting out for everything. Um, you know, that's my hope. And that's, you know, that's what I think is going to happen, at least in the short term. And then I think that conversation will naturally lead to an acknowledgement that the classification system is fundamentally flawed and needs to be redesigned. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to get there. Yeah. Um, but I think it's an incredibly positive outcome that we have moved quickly on this safety net issue. Yeah. And that independent workers can now access benefits that they never could and had no hope of, of accessing anytime soon, just two months ago. Yeah, no, certainly this crisis is kind of... I guess it's a silver lining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, Diane, any, any uh, parting words for the audience? You know, for anybody who's listening who hasn't really paid attention to this trend of the gig economy, of independent work, of how this is changing, and that's whether you're an individual who's an employee who's thinking, "Wow, I wouldn't, I would love for my work life to to look different than it than it has in the past," or whether you're, you know, a corporate leader who's thinking about you know, how do I go back from this and what do I do differently? You know, looking at how do I think about structuring my workforce differently, building a culture that is based on behaviors and interactions and not reliant on physical proximity? Um, these are all questions and issues to contemplate uh, and think about and hopefully, you know, come up with strategies to do things differently going forward. I think, you know, to be competitive, to get the best talent, this is going to be the future for corporate leaders. Um, and it's right here in front of us. It's happening now. So, you know, get on board. <laughs> it's something to think about during this, uh, during this pause. No, I think that that's, that's a great uh, way to end this. I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I, your book has uh, done wonders in, in clarifying people's understanding of the gig economy. So, you know, Wishing you all the best for the future as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, we hope you continue writing and uh, illuminating us. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I love talking about some of these bigger picture issues around, you know, policy. Um, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.